if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them remain until now, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Dr. Edward Byrd, the father of Ed Byrd, Jr., who was on our faculty here at Southeastern until his death, gave me a book not long ago, and in this book it had a sermon on the resurrection in which he expressed a concern that I've had for a long time. That is, how to get the attention of the hearers of this glorious, incredible story on this great day. How do you capture the attention and hold it? For every preacher knows that he'll preach to more people on Easter than at any other time during the year. And I know that I'm preaching to some people today that I will never have an opportunity to speak to again. And because of the uncertainty of life, there may be some among hundreds who have heard these sermons this morning who will never go to church again. And because of that, it makes God's message of this incredible event that much more urgent to be heard. Now, if this event had appeared on the front page of our daily paper, it would have gotten our attention. Everybody would have been abuzz about it, especially if we had had what occurred in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago occur in our city this week. You would have not been able to get down the street for the satellite trucks. And the headlines would probably read something like this, Nazarene's tomb found empty. And out of curiosity alone, everybody would have demanded an explanation for that. Underneath that headline, probably the story would go like this. Earthquake rends city as prophet dies. Sun ceases to shine midnight at midday. Folks were seen in the streets in their grave clothes. And the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And explanations would have been demanded and explanations would have been given. Every anchor newsman would have been doing his spin thing to explain it away, to explain what happened, why it happened, how it happened. And explanations of all kinds would have been flying in this community. 
And folks would ask, you say the prophet is risen from the dead. Do you have proof? Do you have evidence? And does this evidence, will it stand the blistering cross-examination it will get? Is there any any evidence that it is really true? There is evidence. There was and is evidence of its validity. I just want to suggest to a three. The changed mood of these discouraged, disappointed, defeated disciples. I think we have to approach this story through the heart and mind of the people who first heard it. These folks were poor, uneducated, and unknown. And their life was limited to a dull, drab existence of back-breaking toil and oppression. They got up in the morning and they went to work and they came home at night to these little bitty houses below the poverty line and they lived this dull, drab routine until Jesus came. And the radiance of His personality drew them and they left their jobs by the thousands to follow Him. They didn't really know why. They were perplexed and confused but they just sensed that something important was afoot and that they would be a part of something mighty, a mighty movement. And so they watched and they listened as miracles dropped from his fingers and unheard words of wisdom fell from his lips and they watched the crowds gather and they dreamed dreams of a kingdom And they began to believe that this man could brush away death and brush away disease and that he somehow would restore Israel to its place in the sun. And excitement and life was afoot and they were thrilled by it. And then all of a sudden something happened that brought their dreams crashing down at their feet. Modern psychiatry helps us to understand that Because our emotions can get so high, they can fall so low. And so they were riding the emotional crest of this exuberance and exhilaration. The exhilaration of the triumphant entry, the intimacy of the upper room, they were on a high and then their emotions came crashing down and there was death and defeat and disappointment. What an emotional roller coaster. And then all of a sudden, the resurrection occurred. And they were exhilarant and they celebrated. Somebody said that God took the cross and rammed the end out of the sepulcher and let the light of eternal day shine there. 200 miles northeast of Los Angeles is a gorge called Death Valley. It's the lowest place in the continental United States, 276 feet below sea level. It is blistering hot in Death Valley. Temperature often rises as high as 134 degrees Fahrenheit. It never rains there. The average rainfall in Death Valley is two and a half inches per year. Streams flow into Death Valley and disappear. But a few years ago, a phenomenon occurred in Death Valley. 
For 19 straight days it rained there and seeds of plants and flowers that were lying dormant for years began to grow and burst into, into, into bloom. And there suddenly in the valley of death, man was surprised by life. The lowest place in the biblical record is Calvary. But all of a sudden in the valley of death, there was life and they began to celebrate. I love Rebecca Pippert's writings. She says that in her church on Easter, they do it a little differently. The ushers don't walk down the aisles with offering plates. They literally dance down the aisles with inflated, helium-inflated colored balloons. And they pass out these balloons to all the worshipers as they celebrate. And then when everybody has a balloon... They all dance out of the church singing and celebrating and rejoicing. And outside the church building, they let these balloons fly into the air, a canopy of color. And she said, I've often thought, what if some atheists were coming down the street about that time and he sees all that happening and he asks, what on earth is happening? That's a question. What on earth has happened? that has caused this irrepressible joy. Well, God visited the earth like a meteor from an outer planet, and he slammed into this earth with such force that it's never been the same. And besides that, the, the world took death and laid it on the shoulders of this prophet, and he went down into the grave, blasted it aside, and flung it aside, and like Samson, he came out of the grave with the gates of death on his shoulders and carried them away, and we've been celebrating ever since. The changed lives of these disciples. During the crucifixion, they were exposed as to what they were, wimps, cowards, fearful, they all but as the resurrection occurred and dawned on them, they became men of flame. And they con concluded that God had the answers they were looking for. It was as, as if they were saying, okay, do your worst to us. If God be for us, who can be against us? And something happened in the resurrection that transformed these weak, vacillating men into these determined enthusiasts that turned the world upside down. Now, how do you explain that if you have any other explanation except the fact of a living Jesus? I want to hear it. I would like for you to, in your mind, go back 2,000 years to that garden. A few months ago, I was... Happened to go there, be there, privileged to be there. And I'll tell you, it's no place on earth that is more moving than to stand here. On your right is Golgotha. Looks like a skull, a hill. And before you is this empty tomb. And there is historical data that gives validity to the fact that it was the actual tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. What a moving moment. You can go inside it. 
I want you to imagine that you were there 2,000 years ago, somehow got into that garden and into that tomb. How you feel? Fear? Afraid because you're where you ought not be? I mean, in a cemetery at that. Anger? Anger at these who brought him to a mock trial? Anger at Jesus himself? You might be thinking, you didn't have to do this. When you spoke, they fell down. You didn't have to die. But all of a sudden, you hear a noise behind you. You're so frightened, you can't bear to turn around. You hear breathing, and finally, you muster up enough courage to turn and face what is behind you. And there he is, alive. And he holds out his hands towards you, and you freak out. Almost as exciting and as, as marvelous and incredible as that is this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is, that revitalized the amino, amino acids and caused the corpse to sit up and rekindled these dead cells and put breath into those lungs is the same power you received when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Resurrection power. For all around you is the evidence of empowered newness. Peterson puts it like this. The resurrection enables us to live differently because we have been given something we never had before. That is the dynamic presence of the living Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Empowered newness. I want to give you some examples. Charles, Bra Charles Black uh, Broadback, an infidel uh, a couple of generations ago in England, Challenge to Price Hughes, who is a Methodist minister, to a debate about Christianity. He was the leader of the East Side Mission in London. And Hugh Price Hughes accepted the challenge. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll bring a hundred of, of the followers of Jesus who have been transformed by his life. You bring a hundred of the people who have been helped by your messages of infidelity and will debate. On the day of the debate... Hugh Price Hughes had a hundred people, some on the waiting list, who stood to give testimony, who came to give testimony of the change Jesus made, the infidel. Neither the infidel nor any of his followers showed up, so they spent an hour giving testimony to the resurrection. I ask you, who is able to make that change except the living Jesus, not a dead Jesus? And no dead Jesus could accomplish the change I have seen in some of the people in this audience. Rebecca Pippert tells about a class she audited at Harvard. She's a brilliant woman. It was a class called Psychodynamic Psychotherapy. And what the class was about was that they were to try to identify some feelings of hostility they had toward their mother. And, and, and when they identified these feelings of hostility and named them, they were able to kind of feel better. So after a while, uh, Rebecca Pippert mustered up enough psychotherapy jargon to say, now let's suppose that I'm able to identify and name these feelings of hostility that I have toward my mother. 
Now, what do I do about it? I mean, how, how do I love her? How do I forgive her? And he said, well, lots of luck. But they didn't let him by with that. The class tuned in. And they said, no, that's not, a, that's not an adequate answer. If we're able to identify and name feelings of hostility that have made us feel like we, we, we do and act like we do, what can we do about it? How can we forgive them? How can we love them? And they went on and on. And finally, the, the, the instructor said, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong place. That's what we're looking for, a changed heart. Something that will help us love somebody we can't. Somebody to forgive somebody we haven't been able to forgive. To live differently. Let me tell you where you find that changed heart. In the living Jesus. Like Rusty Welburn. Bob McAllister, the first time he saw him, Rusty Welburn was lying on the floor of his cell on death row in South Carolina. Bob McAllister was the chief deputy of the governor's office. He had just become a Christian, and he felt compelled to share the gospel on death row. And so he went down that day to see Rusty Welburn, and he found him lying in a fetal position on the floor of his death cell, totally oblivious to anything around him, a, just a, an expressionless stare, totally unconcerned that roaches were crawling all over him, didn't even brush them aside. And he went in and he shared the scripture with him and he just looked at him with a blank stare. It went on for about six months. And then one day as he began to read the scripture, Rusty Welburn began to cry. It was like a dam had been broken that had been holding back all this hostility and anger and bitterness and shame and guilt. He just sobbed and sobbed his way to God. The next time Bob McAllister went back, his cell was immaculate. He had this, he was clean. He had this smile on his face, and they began a five-year association. Bob McAllister found out that Rusty grew up in a terrible home. His stepfather abused him. His mother was a prostitute. He had two shirts and two pairs of pants that he wore for two solid years. And his friends mocked him at school and they rejected him. So he quit school in ninth grade. He started out on a crime spree that ended up with the most brutal murder in South Carolina history. The mutilation of a woman and her children. And this five-year association developed into a love relationship. Bob McAllister called him the only son he ever had. Rusty Welburn called him Paps. One day Rusty began in this empowered newness. He began to feel, I need to find the brother of this woman I mutilated and I need to ask his forgiveness. But you don't just throw yourself, push yourself on somebody like that. But God was working on the other end. And God saved this woman's brother, and when he did, in the empowered newness of this new heart, he wrote prison and wrote Rusty Welburn and said, I'm coming to see you, and I'm bringing not only forgiveness, but I'm bringing love. And when they met, they embraced and they wept. In the empowered newness, he found a new life, and he found a way to die. For on the night before his execution, Bob McAllister was in his cell, sitting on his cot, reading from the scripture. 
And he looked, and it looked like that Rusty was asleep. And so he got up to leave. And he felt compelled to pull the, cur the covers up around him and kiss him on the forehead, 23-year-old man. So he did. And as Rusty Welburn was walking to his death, he said to the guards, isn't it sad that you have to wait to the last night of your life to be kissed and tucked in? It leads me to the last change, the change with regard to how one views death. For Jesus stepped into the midst of those disciples and held out his hands and said, Peace. And having witnessed him, death took on new significance to them. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die. And they believed it, for they saw him alive. And they never shrank back from death again. Why would they? So Justinian sat in the, in the Colosseum while a few Christians walked in to be mutilated and destroyed by many wild animals. And as they died, Justinian turned to his wife and said, By Jupiter, these Christians know how to die. No, by Jesus, these Christians know how to die. And I love the Living Bible translation of Psalm 116, verse 15. It goes like this. Because his godly ones are precious to him, he will not lightly let them die. And so Adoniram Judson said on his deathbed, I feel like a schoolboy running home from school. And Fanny Crosby said, dying, I think I could run to meet him. I'm going to tell you this, and I'm through. I hope I can do it without emotion. I didn't make it in the first service. My friend Dennis died last summer. I've never been the same since. For 14 years, we had a relationship that was as close as anybody could ever have. He asked me, before he did anything, he would ask my advice or counsel, consent, especially about Scripture. And uh, we had this wonderful thing going on. And I was sitting in my uh, office a few months ago doing my quiet time. And I was thanking God for my friends. And I remember Dennis. And I was just, you know, grieving over this. And then, uh, don't get me wrong, I didn't hear any voices. Nobody appeared in the, my study. But there's this thought that came from way out somewhere. This thought came from some other place. It was like he said, Gerald, 
I know something you don't know. I know what Jesus looks like. He's there. And the first martyr lifted up his eyes, it says, and looked steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. You think he ever feared death after that? Is that enough evidence? It's enough for me. Let's pray together. We want to crown you with many crowns, Lord, upon the throne. Your wounds yet visible above we see your suffering, your death, your glorious resurrection. And even though there are periods of momentary sorrow, not we sorrow not as those who have no hope, our heart fills with joy and rejoicing. And even though we slip and fall, there has been this wonderful change since Jesus came into our heart. And Lord, we know that death does not have its sting nor its victory. We praise you. And I pray, God, that some of us today would do what we should do about it. For I ask in Jesus' name. Now I'm going to ask this. I know it's hard on Easter to do what God wants you to do. And there's a crowd. But you just reach over and touch that person sitting beside you. And they'll move over. They'll let you out. They'll be glad to do it. Maybe you need to come and get introduced to Jesus Christ for the first time are to plant your life in His church. This is the place. Or maybe to give what He does not yet own of you to Him and full surrender of your life. Your home, your marriage, your relationships, your business. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.